This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. For Steve Jorgensen, this is Jay Douglas Barker. And today on iUniverse, we'll be visiting with author Dr. Frederick Monden to discuss his book, Erotic Marriage. Reading from the book cover, it says this, At one time in history, both religion and medicine held that sex was dangerous to our physical, mental, and moral health. The times have changed, and yet these earlier views still strongly impact us today. Additionally, you wrote this, Teaching human sexuality for 25 years has finally given me the sex education I needed when I was 16. But Dr. Monden, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jay, and uh, appreciate having this opportunity to talk to you. Tell me a little bit more about your book. How would you classify this book? Well, the laser focus of the book is to help individuals and couples in, improve their sexual relationship and their emotional connection to each other. And it, it's it's really focused on helping to improve and intensify your erotic experience. And the process of writing this book, you have over 25 years of clinical work in this area. Yes, um, I've been a licensed marriage counselor since 1968, and I've always had a private practice of marriage counseling. And then I started teaching at Boise State in, like, 1985. Um, and all that I taught there primarily was human sexuality. I taught originally some introduction to psychology, but I ended up just teaching all their human sexuality courses. And in the process, I had to do, of course, a lot of research because... There was a lot I didn't know myself. And as I got into the subject, uh, I, it was an interesting observation. One is the students were like between ages 18 and 25, the majority of them. And I taught hundreds of students over that period of time. And one of the things I noticed was even though most of them were having sex, they couldn't talk about sex. They were very embarrassed. They were afraid. They might say something wrong or something that well, everyone would laugh at them. So that it was very difficult for them to address the subject at all. And then when I'd have them write uh, papers for me about you know where they learned, where they got their sexual education, where they learned about sex and uh, different aspects of sexuality, what I was aware of was how ignorant they were. And they even admitted that ignorance. And so... Um, in my marriage counseling, then I have was counseling couples that were like between ages, mostly ages 35 to 55, and who had been married for a number of years. And what I found was that nothing had changed. They were no different than the young students that I was teaching. They mm-hmm. had couples cannot talk about sex. Uh, they can't talk about their sexual feelings or their sexual needs. It's a hard subject for them to address. And they have a lot of ignorance about sexuality. What do you think has predicated this? Why is that the situation in today's society? Well, in America, we have a first-century sexual script in the 21st century. In other words, a lot of what we are taught here in this culture has been formulated and based on the first thousand years of Christianity and Western culture, so that it was um, St. Paul, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, who essentially wrote the sexual script for all of Western civilization. And it's, it's really embedded in the American culture, and you can, you can really see it everywhere, like the teaching of abstinence, even though we know abstinence doesn't work, we've got a number of very good studies from our best universities that show that abstinence really doesn't help the majority of people. And um, 
you know, other countries have gotten way beyond this. They they teach responsibility. They don't teach absence. We can't get comprehensive sex education. We're just now some school districts are starting to put that in. But we have probably at least 33 of the 50 states that are still teaching abstinence, and some of them that are mandated to teach abstinence. And federal government spends over 200 million a year to for the teaching of abstinence. And there's a lot of negative messages around that because with that, you know, you shouldn't be learning about birth control if you're going to be abstinent. So our population doesn't get much education on birth control, on how to make love. Um, We will teach girls about menstruation. We never teach them about the clitoris. There's just a lot of repression and inhibition and restriction on sexual information, even still. And even though we have a culture that, you know, every magazine cover has sexuality or sensuality all over it, all of our movies that are rated R have sex scenes in them that uh, everyone gets to see. But when it comes to actual our sexual practices, we have a very uh, negative scripting. Our authority figures, our government our clergymen, our priests, the message is pretty negative. Sex is a fearful thing. You can, you know, burn in hell if you're not careful about your sexual practices. It can keep you from heaven. Um, it'll ruin your life. And we get those negative messages. And my book, Erotic Marriage, is presenting a very sex-positive view. It is taking a lot of the popular and I believe false ideas that circulate about sexuality in, our, in this culture, and it challenges that and presents a different side to it that is more positive and I think more helpful and uh, will really would help couples a lot because when couples come in, they never talk about sex. I mean, there's a, there's a few that come in specifically with a sexual issue, but those are the exception. The majority of couples when they come in for marriage counseling, do not address sexual issues, and yet they have sexual issues. I'm usually the one that brings it up or the one that discovers it and points it out. You, you, you know, all couples have sexual issues. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, that all couples have sexual issues, but, but most couples can't address them. Just can't talk about it. I know when I was uh, a young married uh, individual. I visited a family that had an older couple, and their caution, I think, was was to be careful of too much sex, which <laughs> caught me off guard. And I, I had not been around anybody quite that repressed, but that was their approach to sex was to spell it. They didn't even want to pronounce the word in public because it wasn't polite, I guess. Well, you know. You- you would think, like the students that I taught, they were all having sex. Almost there were very few virgins in any of my classes, and yet there was so much sexual ignorance and so much difficulty addressing anything beyond intercourse. Like when you get to to masturbation, uh, all the boys knew understood that, but the the girls, I mean, that was like something a girl doesn't do. Now it's still in the 21st century. And that we still have laws there. That when you look at sex laws in the different states, in Idaho, along with twelve other states, it's still against the law to have sex outside of marriage. Hmm. It's against the law. Has it ever been prosecuted, though? Let me ask you that. Well, you know, uh, uh, in two thousand three, the Supreme Court made a ruling that all these laws are really unconstitutional, but they don't take them off the books. And if you get arrested, like, you know, it's also against the law in the majority of states to have oral sex, even if you're married, even a married couple. Didn't realize that. So, so they rarely, they rarely uh, arrest people for this stuff, but they're on the books. And it says something about, you know, at one time people were arrested. In 1996, here in Idaho, uh, three teenage girls were arrested under our fornication law because they got pregnant. And a prosecutor in Emmett, Idaho, said, well, if you're pregnant, that shows you have sex outside of marriage. We have a law against that. And they were arrested. Now, they had a lawyer up, and, of course, they got tossed out of court by the judge. But nevertheless, the fact that those laws are even there says something about the 
our legacy that we have here in America of a very negative sexual script. Do you think the culture itself, uh, music videos, movies, is sending out mixed messages to Yes, I think that the reason why so many American parents have difficulty in even knowing what to tell their children and what to teach their children is that we have a lot of contradictory messages where in our, you know, in our movies and magazines, and there's sex all advertising. There's sex all around us, and and at the same time, we have all this restriction, things that cannot be taught to 12th graders who are ready to graduate from high school and go out into the world, and who are most of them are already sexually active, and yet we can't even tell them the correct way to put a condom on and to take a condom off. Mm. You know, it's like you can't address these subjects. So, yes, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of contradictory messages and that Americans, a lot of Americans, are really confused about what is right, what is wrong, what you, should, what you can say and what you shouldn't say. The, the female population seems to be objectified over the top in our advertising and also in our music industry. The sex, uh, you know, males have a very visual mind. Uh, nature hardwired males to pick up on anything sexual, and because of that, um, men just deal with sexual frustration constantly. They spend their whole lives dealing with sexual frustration Hmm. Uh, because, you know, they pick up on everything, heterosexual males, everything female they're picking up on all day long, and so they're having to deal. It's sad to think about, but... Males will go to their graves having had more sex with themselves than they ever had with a female partner, even if they had a great female partner who loved sex. Males never get enough. Never get enough. Interesting observation. How did you come to write this book? What was your motivation behind it? What I said earlier about the students I was teaching and then the couples I was doing marriage counseling on, had a lot of the same issues in terms of not being able to communicate about, not being able to talk about, feeling embarrassed, feeling ashamed, uh, feeling, you know, a lot of ignorance. And it just seemed like I had studied this and I had learned a lot, not only from the research I did as as, uh, an instructor at Boise State University in sexuality, but also working with couples, I went off and studied with a lot of the experts like Masters and Johnson, I was very fortunate to be able to study with Arnold Kegel in Los Angeles, where I, I lived part of my life, and he was down there. And, and uh, so I, I got the knowledge, and uh, I got sort of a good sex education for myself in the process of trying to learn this stuff so I could help others. And it just made sense to put it in a book and to, to uh, pass it on, because I know there's a real need for a book like Erotic Marriage that is so sex positive. The style of the book, the style of the writing, is it clinical or is it conversational? It's, um, it's mostly conversational. It starts out in which I'm giving the reader a short history of human sexuality so that you can see how we got the, the negative sexual script that we have. And then what I do is I start to move into illustrating and showing what a positive sexual script would be like. And then I've taken couples from my clinical practice. They're actually, I use fictitious names, of course, but Hmm. the dynamics and the issues really came right out of my clinical practice. And I use these couples as examples to clarify and illustrate what a positive sexual script would be like. And I have some couples that were in the negative script, and I show how they learn to get in the positive script. And and so the first part of the book is sort of research-oriented. It's, it's uh, very easy to read because I was very aware that how dry research stuff can be. So it's, it's written like prose. But what, what the book really moves into, the second half of the book, is very, very applicable and personal and down-to-earth and something that couples uh, can read and really get a lot from, and uh, especially they can identify with some of these couples that I use as illustrations. Excellent. Introducing this book to someone that doesn't know you or your work, what would be a phrase that you would use to get them interested? Well, actually, my wife coined uh, 
a phrase, um, become the lover that your lover wants you to be. Great phrase. Great that, phrase. You know, if you read this book, you're going to improve your your sexual response. You're going to improve your sexual abilities. You're going to improve your ability to emotionally connect with your partner. Very important. You know, the book the book isn't just isolating sexuality away from a relationship. I mean, it it talks a lot. In fact, the last two chapters are all about emotional connecting with your partner. This book, there are others in the marketplace. How would you say this one is is different? It's set apart from the crowd. Well, it is. Uh, I think it has some very unique features. Uh, there's a lot on the history of sexuality that everyone needs to read and, and to know. And uh, it's just a short synopsis, but it's poignant. It gets right to the uh, the point and to the important issues. They're important issues in history because they're still influencing us today. And they're still part of the American sexual script. And to be able to see this connection with how we got the script and to be able to really see the... Because, see, a lot of the script is is subconscious to most people. They're not even aware of what I'm talking about. But the history gives you that. And that's what most books don't have. But the other part of my book that I think really makes it unique is it, it's really focused on how to break free of that negativity and to have a more positive sexual experience. And, and that part of it is it, it's different because I'm, you know, I have a master's degree in theology. Hmm. And, and I have a lot to say about how religion has had difficulty with sexuality, especially Christianity is the primary religion of America. Hmm. It's, it is America's religion. And Christianity, while on the one hand, you know, helps a lot of people and does a lot of good, and I recognize that, when it comes to sexuality, it gets bad grades. Hmm. It really presents a pretty negative picture. And that has, even if you're not a Christian, you don't go to church or anything, you know, it has influenced our culture. Our government supports that. And all of our institutions and our teachers and our parents especially usually are, are teaching that negative script. And my book exposes this. It exposes that negative script. And, but it does more than that. It presents a positive script and, and a pathway for getting there. Was that the most most challenging part of writing the book? I think the the, the part that I I enjoyed most was uh, the part of the book where I'm writing about couples who who have uh, many of the sexual difficulties that couples are dealing with today. And uh, you know, I address the issues of masturbation and women especially. I mean, there's exceptions. There's always exceptions, but generally speaking. The majority of females still have difficulty with masturbation. And if you have difficulty with masturbation, you're going to have difficulty in sexual intercourse in terms of being able to get into a really deep erotic state, which is required in order to have orgasm. I'm I'm dealing with uh, pornography, and, you know, Americans are not allowed to see sex. I don't even like the word pornography because it's been so abused you, when you say pornography, you think of sexual degradation of of men or of women. Mm-hmm. I like to use the term erotic movies because in erotic movies, you're just seeing couples having intercourse. And Americans are not allowed to see couples having intercourse. In fact, we're not even supposed to watch two dogs doing it. We're not supposed to see a steer and a cow doing it. I mean, if the cow, dogs are doing it, you turn the hose on them. And if the cows are doing it, you look the other way. I mean, it's like we're not supposed to see sex as Americans. And um, so just an erotic film. Like I would, I would show a professionally made film. It wasn't even on intercourse. It would be on, on, uh, on an anatomy, male and female anatomy, but a very well-done professional film for my classes. And I'd have students that get up and walk out when I'd start to show it. I had one student, I remember, who closed her eyes through the whole thing. She said, I didn't let myself see it. But I listened to it, and I learned a lot from it. You know, Interesting it's like, observation. That's the American's negative script. We've been busy with Dr. Frederick D. Modden, author of Erotic Marriage. Dr. Modden, thank you for visiting with us today. Where can we get a copy of your book? Uh, you can get it at uh, Amazon Books, 
Amazon.com, and you can read reviews of, of uh, reader reviews in that. BarnesandNobleBooks.com. And then the book has a website, and on the website you can order the book, but you can also read reviews from judges. It's won um, 11 awards, uh, most recently it just won the 2013 National Indie Excellence Award, and then it won win Winner's Choice also. So the book is getting a lot of recognition, and if you simply go to www.eroticmarriagedrmondon.com, you can uh, read more about the book, excerpts from the book, some of the judges' reviews. Uh, there is a blog there where you can communicate with me and ask me questions, and I'll answer them for you. And Thank you for sharing this introduction to what promises to be a very intriguing and informative read. Well, Jay, it's been wonderful talking with you. Pleasure, sir. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey to a Brave New World, and the author is David Watts, and David Watts joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you with us. The subtitle really sets this up even more, of course, uh, Journey to a Brave New World, the startling evidence that humanity is being manipulated towards a very grim future, but we can change direction. That's the hope and the positive side to this book. It, uh, it is what it is. I think we see it in the news everywhere. And, of course, we all remember A Brave New World. Aldous Huxley wrote that back. When did he write that? Well, he wrote it in 1931. It was published in 1932. So here was a man who could see it coming. Yep, absolutely. Um, and uh, again, he, he wrote Brave New World Revisited in 1952, just uh, further saying that um, his, uh, his vision that, that was depicted in 1932 was, uh, was certainly moving along nicely. So why did you write this book? And you've written another book as well. There's a couple of books you've written. Yeah, uh, this book and then uh, part two of it, um, Journey to Brave New World, part two. But uh, the reason I wrote uh, these books was to try and help people wake up to, to what is happening in our world, uh, how we're being manipulated and engineered towards a 
you know, a vision, as I say, that uh, is not going to be very good for the majority of us. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted something to be able to be a, a quick read for those that uh, wanted to at least explore it and also as a tool for those that were awake but had difficulties in waking up their friends and family to what was really happening. Well, let's get an overview. Tell us, you just, you know, just uh, give us a snapshot and maybe some, we'll get into some details later, but just kind of give us an overview of your first book. Yeah, well, the first book, um, what it does is I start off by taking what appears to be unconnected but some bizarre news reports and show some of the backstories uh, to those and some of the important questions that haven't been uncovered by so-called journalists. And, um, you know, just as what one example was the um, uh, a news report that went out uh, uh, explaining that um, there will always be a human behind uh, uh, the drones and uh, you know there will be no automated killing of people using drones and yet when you look at the um, research uh, that's been done within the uh, the Marine Corps and their robotics division uh, their stated goal is to create a fully autonomous uh, unmanned ground weapon system so you know it, it goes completely against the uh, the news reports that we see uh, and then you know, I cover off the um, really the history of banking and how the central bankers uh, effectively create money out of nothing and then use that ill-gotten gains to manipulate events uh, to further consolidate wealth uh, for the uh, for the one percent. So you see a conspiracy. It's very clear to you. Oh, it is. Absolutely clear. Um, there is a small group of people that are controlling the world. Uh, they essentially control all of the banking, all of the media outlets, and both sides of the political spectrum, as was um, confirmed by Carol Quigley in 1960 in his book, uh, Tragedy and Hope. And he was one of the insiders and just wanted to tell everybody. Yeah, he was actually the, uh, apart from being a professor of history at uh, Browns and Princeton, uh, he was the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. And he, uh, uh, again, confirmed that he had access to all of their documents uh, for two years. And um, he said back in the 60s in his book that uh, the both sides of the political spectrum were really being run by the same group, which heralded out of the... Well, the Institute of International Affairs, the Roundtable and the Milner Group that then spun off to become the Council on Foreign Relations and that really there is no left and right uh, because they're all controlled by the same uh, puppet or, or hand in the middle. Now, you're in your second book, Brave New World, and what is it titled, the full title? Uh, Brave New World Part 2 with Part the subtitle U.S. Civilian Labor Camps, the Trojan Horse for the Communist Takeover of the United States and the Plan to Stop It. Mm. So in, in this book, uh, what I do is I detail out the plans and procedures that are already in place uh, for civilian inmate labor camps within the United States. And I then detail out the... Uh, the build-up of the Department of Homeland Security with their two-plus-something billion rounds of ammo, the mine-resistant armored vehicles that they purchased, the thousands of Heckler Koch machine guns, uh, all of it uh, detailing out using actual government uh, documents um, and um, uh, contract award information. Well, those are chilling words when you start talking about civilian inmate labor camps. Uh, but obviously, with the latest news, the way they're spying on us, and Obama doesn't seem to think that's wrong, it's, you know, just trust the government, right? 
Yep, trust the government. And by the way, um, you don't need any weapons. Uh, the only people that are allowed to be having weapons in the future will be the Department of Homeland Security. Sounds rather like uh, Nazi Germany to me. Well, uh, what, what would the readers find controversial in your book that just would just rub them the wrong way? Well, uh, the, the readers might find uh, a lot of things controversial. Um, you know, the one, ch in, uh, one chapter in the first book, The Depopulation Agenda, I uh, show that there is a plan to have a massive depopulation of the world uh, to at least 90, down to even 95 percent. And people might find that controversial because they just couldn't believe that a, a small group of people would have that uh, goal. But uh, I, again, I do uh, provide a great deal of uh, uh, evidence and research that I've uncovered, uh, both from the writings of the so-called elites, um, you know, also detail out things like the Georgia Guidestones, which is a set of stones, sometimes called the American Stonehenge, uh, which has the uh, written on it uh, what they call the Ten Commandments of the Georgia Guidestones, and the first of those commandments is to maintain humanity at levels of 500 million. Uh, we stand at 7 billion roughly at the moment, so that would mean 6.5 billion people would have to be uh, not on this planet. So do you see that coming through war or just genocide? Well, I, it's, it's a full-spectrum attack. Um, it's done through vaccinations, as Bill Gates said, that uh, they would um, manage the population and reduce the population by use of vaccines. It's done through uh, genetically modified foods. It's done through fluoridated water. And that's why you see reports, even the British broadcasting company, BBC, last week came out and said that by 2020, uh, half of the UK population will die of cancer. Well, you, that, uh, mm. those statistics are just incredible. And if you look at the uh, infertility rates, the re huge reduction in sperm count, particularly in the Western world where fluoridated water is used, uh, you will see that there is a, a definite uh, depopulation agenda there. And again, they do use wars to, um, uh, to try and make a dent. But again, you know, all of this is, is planned. It's documented in the writings of Bertrand Russell. Uh, John Holdren, who is Obama's science czar, wrote in his book, uh, Eco-Science, Population, Resources and Environment, in the 1970s, along with Paul Ehrlich and Anne Ehrlich, that to control population, they would uh, include adding a sterilant to the water or food supply. And of course, shortly after that, we see the massive increase in fluoridated water in the United States. And cancer seems to be at epidemic rates. It seems like everybody, I mean, there's nobody, there isn't anybody that doesn't know somebody with cancer. No, that's right. And um, of course, they, they know what, what, it's, uh, what it's doing. Uh, or how the cancer is caused. You only have to look at uh, the plastics that they use for uh, drinking water or the liner of uh, food cans. It contains bisphenol A. Bisphenol A, um, it leaches into the, uh, into the food and water, mimicking estrogen, which uh, certainly in women causes cancer and uh, a you know, high dosage or regular dosage of estrogen for men uh, can make them more effeminate. Well, we want to get to some of your recommendations. You, in fact, you say you have a 45-step plan that we must take to change direction and return the U.S. to its former glory. Uh, but you just wanted to make just a comment that you also believe that we've been lied to about the events of 9-11. Uh, we've only got, uh, like, if you could just share about a minute's worth on that, and then we'll get to what you see we must do. But just quickly talk about 9-11. Yes, uh, unfortunately, we were lied to about 9-11. Uh, some of the smoking guns in a, in a very uh, quick um, overview here is World Trade Center 7. 
It collapsed into its own footprint at near free fall speed. There were fires only on about four or five of those floors. Um, it was a 47-story building. Um, as I say, it collapsed at near free fall speed. And um, it didn't even get a mention in the 9-11 Commission report. Uh, but also interestingly is that BBC and CNN reported that it had collapsed 20 minutes before it actually did. Clearly, uh, they got the timing of their scripting wrong. And then when you look at the, the Pentagon, uh, I have pictures of the Pentagon before the roof collapsed, and all you see is a 16-foot diameter hole. There is no way that a Boeing 757 with a 124-foot wingspan and a tail height of 44 foot could possibly fit into a 16-foot hole. So, yes, 9-11, unfortunately, um, we were lied to about that. Give us a few of your steps to help us change direction and literally take our country back. Well, uh, as I say, in, in the second book, I detail out 45 steps. Um, I've not got them in any particular order, uh, but I do believe that uh, communism is being used to grind us down and uh, make us a more immoral country. And uh, so with that, uh, the first step that I uh, in, uh, put down in my book uh, was to reinstate the hearings on the un-American activities. Uh, the next step uh, would be to kick out the Federal Reserve uh, and introduce an amendment to ensure that central banks were never allowed to operate in the United States again. And I mentioned it earlier about fluoridation of water, but immediately stop fluoridation of water supply. Um, if we look back in the um, in 1939, there was a, a hearing on the un-American activities, and in there they said that fluoridation of water was a communist plan to make the American public more docile so that they would not uh, revolt against the encroachment of communism. So those are just three of the uh, three of the steps that uh, that I've outlined in my second book. Well, there's certainly a lot written out there uh, about you know the future, about uh, the takeover of America. What makes yours so different? I think uh, what I try to do is to provide as much evidence and information, but in a very quick and easy to read book. Uh, there's many out there that are excellent, but again, those books can often be four or five hundred pages long, making it very difficult for someone who's kind of thinking about it to actually you know, want to pick it up and read it. Uh, this you can read uh, very quickly, um, certainly in a day, but some have said that they've managed it in a few hours. Um, I also give a lot of um, reference points and also some other uh, research um, materials for the for the reader to to go and check out. Well, thank you very much, David Watts, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. His book, Journey to a Brave New World, and Journey to a Brave New World Part Two. He's got two books. Tell us how to get your books, David. Well, you can go to iUniverse.com and uh, search for Journey to a Brave New World. And, uh, or you can also go to my website, JourneyToABraveNewWorld.com, and both are available there. Or they're available on Amazon, and Barnes and & Noble, and other online bookstores. Again, thank you for being with us. We appreciate you sharing your insights, and it's uh, very sobering. But uh, there is hope if we will just stand up as we the people, right? Exactly. We can change direction. We just need people to wake up and uh, get off the couch and do something about it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. 
It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to uh, hearing your poetry. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That's, I'm always in awe of you folks. All right, here we go in three, two, one. The title of the book, this book of poetry, Lanterns of the Soul, A Poetic Journey Through Life, and the author and poet, Linda Harris, and Linda joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Linda. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, Lanterns of the Soul. You, you have uh, chapters titled Lanterns of the fam- on the Family, Lanterns on Faith in God, Lanterns on Man's Mortality, and of course many more. We'll learn more about the details in a minute of you just say, hey, I'm just an ordinary woman with a very ordinary life, but you love to put your thoughts and feelings about a lot of different subjects on paper, and your daughters really encouraged you. They did. They did. And I do like to um, put my thoughts in the form of poems. Well, you know, there's some uh, very serious, and there's other poems that will just laugh out loud. So you have a little bit of everything. Thank you. I hope so. So uh, what started all of this you know, writing poetry? When did that start? Um, I started when I was about 13. I don't remember any defining moment. I just really don't remember a time before that when I didn't do it. And I don't remember thinking, oh, this is great. You know, um, this is what I want to do. I just kept on doing it, and I guess... You know, as I got older, I I really enjoyed it and leaned on it as a way to express myself because I don't care to do that very often verbally. I find it much easier to write my thoughts down. So that's what started it. And I have three beautiful grown daughters, and they've seen me write um, all the time that they were growing up. And uh, several years ago, they just browbeated me into <laughs> putting them all down in a book for them so that they would all have them. Well, exactly. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll do that. Um, and then I finally got the book published after one manuscript that was sent to a bogus publishing company. Um, then they, uh, they had to, they're the ones who came and told me about that company that was not really for real, and then they went on their own and found iUniverse. And the rest is history. Well, good for you and good for all of us to have uh, 
your view, your poetic journey through life, because you've included poems that you wrote when you were 13 all the way up to the present. Yes, in, in every chapter. So that's where you get the poetic journey. Right, right. So we get a, a view of this young lady growing up into a mature woman, a mother, uh, and a grandmother. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. Thank well, you. Well, why don't you share one with us right now? What, what's the name of it? Um, it's called Winter's Flower. Um, it is, um, it's very true. It's very sad. But it, it depicts a lot of my poems because I don't tend to write just about myself and my feelings. I actually prefer to write about things that other people or are going through or have been through. Um, this was my daughter's very dear friend. So it's called Winter's Flower. A car, a curve, a chilling fog, spoken words, a look, a nod, crashing metal, nothing left, a sickening silence, death, an hour come, an hour gone, a tender life unjustly wronged. Within that hour comes an end, someone's daughter, someone's friend. Very lovely, sweetest spring, but twas the winter with its sting that now forbids her cheerful play forbids her youth these summer days. A flower just about to bloom, then swiftly plucked away too soon. A flower sad that winter came, and in the mist it breathed her name. And that is for love of Tanya. And this true story, Tanya, well, it's how old when she had the accident? Nineteen. Nineteen. And uh-huh. friend of one of your daughters? Yes. And yeah. it happened... Um, Within view of her mother's kitchen window. Oh, my goodness. Uh Uh-huh. My goodness, my goodness. Well, that took us right there. That's what's great about poetry. It just focuses us, and we feel the emotion. We can see pictures, and it's a a concentrated form of life. And very well done. Very, very well done. Now, now, uh, I see you have others, uh, other true stories that you have in your book. Lots of true stories. Lots of true stories. Yes. Okay. Um, I have a lot of poems that end like that for love of and or in memory of or mm-hmm. um, for this, this is for someone that this happened to. Those are all true um, that that did happen right. to people. They're, right. they're not always sad. You know, I have a lot of poems in there. It's a personal book. It's a family book. You know, like I said, I really didn't think I was going to be publishing it. So a lot of my poems are on love and family and my children growing up and my experiences being a grandmother that outweigh anything I ever imagined. <laughs> I agree. I'm a grandfather. I understand. Oh, you? oh my goodness. Yes. I've got an eighth one coming in November and they blow me away. My, they make my cup run us over. Well, there it's magic. It's no way to have anyone understand unless you've experienced it, right? That that's for sure. My kids don't understand. You know, they they uh we've got nine grandkids and you know, every time oh, wow. we every time we see our kids it, it's uh oh it's good to see you. Now let's go where are the grandkids. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> they are They must feel off. Little... Yeah. Well, they are. They are. Precious little people. Yeah, and they connect so well with grandparents. It's just part of life. It's just part of God's plan, I believe. Well, the only thing that I think God made a mistake in is that I keep telling the girls, it's just too bad that maybe once a month you don't get to be me and see your own children through my eyes. Yes, You'll yeah. be a grandmother someday, but it's not going to be to your well, children. It'll be to theirs. And I think what it is is we don't see them every moment of our lives like we did when our kids were growing up. You know, they were. Oh no, you us. don't have all the trash going on. And and it's just it's just it's just magic. It's just exciting. Uh-huh. You're looking forward to it, and then and it's uh-huh. about you know it's just it's just quite a connection and. Yeah, every I think the grandkids feel it too because of all the attention they get right, from right. the grandparents. So let's see. Why don't Why don't you share another one? Um, this one's called "My Greatest Honor." My grandson laughed today. His laugh was just for me. He thinks it's just the greatest to play peekaboo with me. 
<laughs> a few short minutes later, my granddaughter so happily squeals, Mama, come let's play. We'll pretend we're having tea. This joyous sound of voices, so small and ever sweet, their busy little bodies and swiftly moving feet. What did we do without them? I can't remember what. They've so enriched our lives, their play so fun to watch. Their smiles are like the sunshine, they warm me with delight. Their gorgeous, glistening eyes, as bright as stars at night. To hear them whisper, please don't go, is such a compliment. It makes me feel I did okay this time together spent. They honor me with love beyond my greatest dream. I praise you for these two and those I get to see. Very well I've, said. I've had um, two. I've had five more since then, <laughs> and one on the way. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, Thank there you. you have about two hundred and fifty poems in your book, and yes. they're all under different titles with a lantern on, for example, oh. on family, on God and faith, on man's mortality. And the list goes on and on, I guess. I use lanterns because I love lanterns. Uh, I like the way they shine that soft glow, and they kind of give you just a, a peek at things. And being poetry about my thoughts and feelings and observations and stuff, it's kind of like um, a little peek into my soul or a little peek into someone else's soul. So that's why it's called Lanterns of the Soul. Well, every poem, a unique perspective on an idea, you know, gives, just kind of brings moments to life and gives us reasons to laugh out loud or even cry. So uh, you take us from one extreme to the other in our emotions. So that's what poets do. I hope. <laughs> I hope so. Well, very good. Very good, Linda. Thank you. I hope people will enjoy reading some of them. Well, tell us how to get your book, Lanterns of the Soul. Linda Harris is the poet. Um, you can get it from my website, which is www.lindaslanterns.com. I spell my name with a Y. You can get it through iUniverse, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and in some places, Kindle or eBook. Very good. Well, there it is, everyone. Linda Harris, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. 